Well, let's go ahead and get started. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Martin Chemnitz in Caridian, Ministry, Word, and Sacraments. We're going to be picking up at page 49 where we left off. And if you recall from last week, we had learned from Chemnitz the distinction between repentance in the wide sense and repentance in the narrow sense. Repentance in the wide sense, of course, being the conversion of the whole man, so then including what we would call law and gospel. And then repentance in the narrow sense being particularly contrition worked by the law, not by the gospel. And of course, this idea of repentance in the wide sense and in the narrow sense, as we'll see in the pages to come, has its mirror image in the gospel in the wide sense and the gospel in the narrow sense. Because the gospel in the wide sense is simply law and gospel combined. It's that message of salvation broadly or widely speaking. And then in the narrow sense, in opposition to the law, the law creates that contrition, that repentance in the narrow sense, and the gospel in the narrow sense affects faith in the heart and salvation. So we saw those two things. And then what we're going to do today is move into the discussion on the divine law, and we're going to see many things that are very fitting for us to learn or remember, given our current context. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, at the bottom of 49, the divine law in general, we have some short questions and answers. First, what is that which is in general called the divine law? Chemnitz answers, it is the doctrine given by God that commands and points out how we ought to be and what we ought to do and not to do. Next question. Are Christians to be compelled according to the laws of the Old Testament to be circumcised, bring sacrifices, observe the Sabbath, and abstain from eating swine's flesh? I hope not. Chemnitz answers, by no means. For these laws have been abrogated, and Christians are no longer bound to their observance. All right, question 72. But these laws have been given by God no less than the law of the Decalogue. The Decalogue, of course, being another word for the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words. Continuing with the question, is it therefore rash boldness on the part of Christians who, as though they had a choice, either reject or retain some of the divine laws as they see fit? Chemnitz answers, the Christian church by no means takes this liberty for itself by its own will. But God himself has so made some laws that not all men everywhere on earth are bound to their observance, but only, in particular, the people of Israel, so that, namely, that people itself might be distinguished from all other peoples by certain rites and special ceremonies, namely, 
that out of it and in it the promised Messiah would be born. Therefore he also did not want those laws to be perpetual, but to continue only for the time predetermined by God, namely up to Christ. But God so promulgated the laws of the Decalogue that they bind all people of all times and places. All right, well, that's going to lead us naturally into the next question, which is show this with firm proofs of Scripture. So we're going to do that. And we're going to see then emerging this threefold law of which we've spoken before, that in the Old Testament law you have the ceremonial laws. You can think of the book of Leviticus, generally speaking. And you have the civil laws or political laws. You can think of the book of Deuteronomy, again, very generally speaking. The ceremonial laws governing the worship in the temple and the civil laws governing the ancient nation-state of Israel. You can see how both of those have been abrogated and put away. The centerpiece being the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, which reflect the natural law, which God has written into the hearts of people even before Moses, even before the Sinaitic Covenant, Moses on the mountain, receiving them penned by the finger of God into the stone tables. So that's why Chemnitz says that God promulgated the laws of the Decalogue in such a way that they bind all people of all times and all places. Because they simply, the Ten Commandments simply reflect, in their essence, what God has written on the hearts of man from the very creation forward. Okay? So with that threefold distinction in mind, and we can, I mean... So popularly speaking, of course, you'll hear this all the time. Well, you Christians don't abide by the ceremonial or civil laws. And, you know, some egregious one will be mentioned, you know, or notorious one will be mentioned, like mismatching fabrics, which is rejected, or um, stoning a disobedient child or some such thing. And this will be said then, since you Christians don't follow these, you're hypocritical to follow, fill in the blank, whether it's the condemnation of homosexuality, which it usually is, or something else. But what you can see in this, and and by the way, the most famous person I know who quoted this to a huge national audience was our former president, Barack Obama, uh, made this argumentation. So what you can see is the world misunderstanding the distinction between the ceremonial and civil laws, which have been abrogated and put away, and the moral laws, which have existed in all times and in all places. This also, if you want to see the argument for this, just read the first couple chapters in Romans, where Paul talks about the Jews being under the law, that is, under the Decalogue as written, but all pagans everywhere, all Gentiles everywhere, being without excuse. Why? Because the law of God is written upon their hearts in such a way that their consciences accuse or excuse them. So even Gentiles are without excuse. Not having the law, that is the written law, they nonetheless have the law written in their hearts. So St. Paul is where we gather this doctrine as well. All right, good enough to go on to the scriptural proofs, or do you want to pause and have question or comment? Anything? No? Thinking about it? Well, I don't want to figure out the whole passage, but 
Oh, no problem. I think, I think, yeah, no, we'd be happy to entertain that. So it sounds like the Ten Commandments are universal for all time, revealing to us God's creation and ordering, the mm-hmm. right ordering of everything, who yeah. he is, how we relate to each other, what he made for us. The ceremonial laws served the purpose to keep people separate, that they were showing their faith in the Christ to come? Is that Well, that's we an aspect of oh. them, is that they will make a distinction then between the ancient Hebrew peoples and their pagan neighbors. And that's where you get the weird ones, like the mixing of fabric and the not eating this or that, and the stuff that just doesn't make a lot of sense on any practical level is very frequently in antithesis to the pagan worship at the time and the pagan superstitions at the time. And so God is making a very... Uh, so like one, one that's connected with that, maybe it's not the perfect example, but the blood prohibition in Leviticus, that the, that the Hebrew people cannot drink the blood of the sacrifice or the blood of the animals. I mean, it's kind of a normal thing. Why would you go through this special process of draining it all and making it kosher? And so the rationale is because all of the pagan neighbors of the ancient Hebrew people were drinking the blood of animals, and by the way, human beings, in order to absorb their life force and strength. And so God says, absolutely not, and none of this to his people. And of course, he's got a double purpose in that. For the life is in the blood, meaning you should not do superficially this pagan practice and be distinct from them in the drinking of blood. But he does, in fact, assert that the life is blood, or the life is in the blood, setting us up for that time in which then the Lord breaks the blood prohibition, or rather fulfills it when he says, take, drink, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. Thus we are prepped with the Hebrew people of old to receive that life which is in the blood, right? Yeah, so when we think of the ceremonial, we can think of everything that God does to um, govern the temple, the Levitical priesthood, the nature of the sacrifices, And it's always going to be more than merely, hey, look what the pagans are doing, let's do something different. There are going to be components of that. But it's Yahweh setting forward the positive worship and the positive way in which he's going to serve his people in the Old Testament. So a lot of this has to do with, in the New Testament, we have the divine service where Christ, the divine one, is present with us to serve us with his word and his sacrament. And so we, we are called into his house where he forgives us our sins and blesses us with all his gifts. That's not a New Testament invention. At its root, that's the Old Testament too. That's the idea of God in the first place having a tabernacle among his people. A tabernacle is just a big tent. The Feast of Tabernacles, Vicar talked about the Feast of Booths, this idea of tents. When God institutes the tabernacle in the wilderness wanderings, he's simply setting up his tent among their tents. And he wants to have them over. 
<laughs> I mean, it's all kind of colloquial when you think about it. It's very friendly and familial. It's amazingly so. God puts his tent in the neighborhood and he says, hey, I want you to all come over. But to come over to his tent, to come over to his house, he's holy and the people are not. So how's he going to have them over lest they die? So he institutes the sacrificial system by which they might be cleansed. And he institutes the priest to offer that sacrifice. Now you can see the dual nature of the priesthood. The sacrifices are in fact offered to God to blot out their sins, but offered for the sake of the people and unto the people that they might be cleansed of their sins. And cleansed of their sins, then they can be brought into the temple to receive the gifts of his word, his presence, and everything else he has for them. So the Old Testament already is the divine service, and the New Testament is just the divine service writ large and writ universal that all of humanity might worship in spirit and in truth. Wherever Christ is, there the divine service is, in effect, as long as two or three are gathered there in his name. Okay, so that'll help then when we see the ceremonial laws governing that and the civil laws also being distinct from the pagan neighbors in many respects. Uh, but the civil laws also being written, I think, to this angle in particular, protecting that line that will eventually lead to the Christ, protecting that family and that line in such a way that it will lead to the Christ. So there's sometimes you can see some idiosyncrasies in there, and you're like, well, what's the purpose of that? And frequently, it's to keep the homogeneity, the, the homogeneous nature of that family, that indeed the Christ might be the heir of this line. Did that answer your question? Okay, very good. Okay, so let's pick back up then at question 73 on page 50. And again, we're going to see the scriptural proofs now. And I've printed some of them out so that we'll have those handy. Chemnitz writes, when Moses speaks of ceremonial and public laws, he usually uses this phrase, you shall keep these things in your generations. And where Paul treats of the same things, he says only that the Jews are under the law, in the law, and of the law. And references are given here to Romans 3.19 and 4.16 and 1 Corinthians 9.20. Those aren't really going to be anything odd to us. We're going to understand that. So let's just simply move along. The law was our pedagogue up to Christ, Galatians 3. It was imposed up to the time of correction, Hebrews 9.10. And in fact, Hebrews is really the text that shows in what ways the law has been, the Old Testament law has been fulfilled in Christ and abrogated in Christ. Because there you see the end of the ceremonial Laws, you see the end of Leviticus as they are fulfilled in Christ and superseded by what he brings. Chemnitz continues, and it belongs to the Old Testament, which was outdated and abrogated at the time of the New Testament. Now, important because the Old Testament 
here, we're referring not to the books. We're referring to that which takes place at Mount Sinai. That's the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Sinaitic Covenant, which, by the way, is instantiated when Moses takes the blood of the bulls and sprinkles the people. That's the covenant instantiated, the Old Covenant. Okay? Then what is the New Testament? It's Again, we're not talking here about the collection of texts. We're talking about when Christ takes his cup and says, this is the New Testament, the New Covenant in my blood. And now you see the connection. So the Old Covenant is ratified by the blood of bulls, the New by an infinitely greater blood, the blood of the Son of God himself. And you can see how foolish here a uh, symbolic understanding of that would be. Because was it symbolic blood that Moses used? No. And if it's symbolic blood that Jesus is using, then there's no covenant. There's no covenant. There's no forgiveness of sins without blood. And so this new covenant is in the blood of Jesus and for the forgiveness of sins those two data points both proving that it is his real blood. So just again to remind ourselves when we're talking about the Old Testament and the New Testament in this context, we're properly speaking of those covenants, not the collection of documents in our Bibles. So again, Chemnet says, the Old Testament is outdated and abrogated at the time of the New Testament. And there he mentions Jeremiah 31, which is a wonderful verse, and Hebrews 8. Um, so showing the Old Testament and the New Testament both understand that there's going to be a time in which the Old Testament comes to an end. Jeremiah even foreseeing that in chapter 31 of his book of prophecy. Continuing with Chemnitz, and there are two kinds of that law, namely ceremonial, again that has to do with the temple, and civil or political, that has to do with the ancient nation state. He continues, moral laws, as they existed before Moses, put into the minds of men in creation itself, and later often repeated by God himself and by the patriarchs before Moses, were so retained by Christ and the apostles in the New Testament. And we're going to have some scriptural references here. Uh, just one word, you know, the, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue as such, has as its, at its essence this natural law or this timeless and eternal law. There are some very superficial time-bound aspects of the Ten Commandments proper. You can think, for example, the Third Commandment, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Okay, so here you can make a distinction between the external form, you must remember the Sabbath day, the seventh day, and on it you must not work, and on it then you must dwell on the word of God. 
So we can see the way in which the form, the external form of that shifts, even in the New Testament scriptures with the apostles in the book of Acts, right off at the outset, they're continuing to meet in the temple on the Sabbath, and then on the first day of the week, Sunday, they're having the divine service. And then as the persecutions arise, the temple worship on the Sabbath goes away, and Christian worship continues on Sunday. You can see this already in the book of Acts. Okay, So what is the essence then of the third commandment? Well, that once a week we would hear the word of God and hold it in great honor and gladly hear and learn it. So that's at the essence. And that has been from the very start. So we can see here even an ordering of creation and the way the world works. That God has seen fit that there's a morning and an evening. I mean, there doesn't have to be. (laughs) But there's a morning and an evening that the very cosmos itself would call us to recognize the day and thus to recognize daily prayer. And then this builds to the week and the very cosmos itself tells us that once a week we gather corporately to hear God's word as his family, as his people. From there on, we can move to months and years and so on, but all of these things written into the cosmos themselves. Okay, so the point being that in something like the third commandment, we can distinguish an externality, which does indeed fade away with the old covenant, but the essence of it remains. So the essence of having God, the essence of honoring his name, the essence of hearing his word, the essence of obedience to father and mother, but of course all other authorities that derive their authority from father, and not murdering and not committing adultery. These are the essence. Okay? When we get to something like the Tenth Commandment, again, you can see a little of the superficiality so, um, or the externality. So like the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Like, clearly not limited to those things. Clearly those things are a bit time-bound. You know? Now it'd be like, you know, don't covet your neighbor's uh, BMW or his employees, or whatever the case may be. So you can see so there how there's a little bit of externality that's sort of abrogated and passed, but the essence remains the same. Okay, probably enough on that. Probably overdid it a little bit. But you can see then uh, how the Ten Commandments, at their essence, reflect this eternal law of which Chemnitz is pointing us. Now, as he says, this, is re- this eternal law is retained by Christ and the apostles in the New Testament. Which, of course, if you go looking for this, you're going to find every commandment repeated except for which one, do you think? The third. Yeah, because the third, again, just remember the Sabbath day is going to be inherent in the do not forsake gathering together as some have done <laughs> in Hebrews. Okay, so Matthew 5... Um, what does he cite here? 17. Christ says, this is the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, here he is talking about the Old Testament scriptures. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Does that sound to you like the Lord wants the commandments taught? You'd say, well, he doesn't mention the Ten Commandments. Do you think the Ten Commandments are part of those commandments? <laughs> I think it's unavoidable. So it's as clear as day. And if you have people telling you that the Ten Commandments, this, at their essence, the, this natural law, this eternal law, should no longer be taught in the church, well, they presume to correct Christ on this point. And I would highly recommend sticking with Jesus rather than with those who oppose him. Okay, what else is cited there? Romans 3.31. Paul writes, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one. Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And skipping ahead in Chemnitz citations, he cites Romans 7, and I simply don't want to quote it because it will quickly just become a class on Romans 7. But let's jump to 13, 8 through 9 where Paul writes, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now listen to the reassertion of many of the commandments of the Decalogue. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So should we set the law aside? No. Does Paul say, hey, this new commandment I give you, ignore. You you know, you've you've heard, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. You've heard the other commandments of the deck. Throw those out. Now it's this new thing called love. No, he says he sets all these things forward positively, and he says they're fulfilled in love. And that's prescriptive for the Christian. Okay, well, I won't belabor the point, but those are the texts that Chemnitz lays out here to demonstrate, and others could be laid out, to demonstrate how Christ and the apostles, we heard from Christ, we heard from Paul, how these clearly retain the moral laws that existed before Moses exist at the essence of the Ten Commandments and continue to ex- uh, exist unto eternity. All right, so Chemnitz continues, in fact, God himself has clearly pointed out this difference between his laws, for he wrote the precepts of the Decalogue with his fingers and gave command that they be put into the Ark of the Covenant. First Kings 8-9 shows that they're put into the Ark of the Covenant. But, 
Moses wrote the rest of the laws, and they were kept in the temple. And this detail recorded in 2 Kings 22.8. So Chemnitz can demonstrate that God himself writes the Decalogue with his finger, and they go into the covenant where all the other laws, which would be the ceremonial and political, these are written by the hand of Moses. Of course they come from God, but they're written by the hand of Moses, and they go into the temple. So a distinction is already shown in this. That's Chemnitz's point. And he continues, on the basis of these principles, one must search out the division of divine laws into their kinds, why they are commonly counted as threefold, namely moral, ceremonial, and political. All right, let's pause there. See if you, uh, I know that might be a lot to take in if you're doing so for the first time or if you're unfamiliar with these categories. Happy to take any questions or comments. Otherwise, give a moment to pause here and then we'll move on to the next. Okay to move on? You guys are faking me out back there. All right. Question 74. When therefore scripture says that we are not under the law, Romans 6.15. And by the way, there are other verses that could be mustered to this effect. When scripture says that we are not under the law, Romans 6.15, but freed from the law, Romans 7.6 and free from the condemnation of the law, Galatians 3.13. Are these statements of Scripture to be understood only of the ceremonial and political laws of Moses? Ah, great question. How is Kenneth going to answer this? With regard to, now here's the first clause, the curse and condemnation of the law because of sins, Likewise, two, here's the second major clause, justification by the works of the law, believers have been freed through Christ from the whole law and all of its parts. So, once more doing a little dissection, with regard to the curse and condemnation of the law, Believers have been freed through Christ from the whole law and all of its parts. Next, with regard to justification by the works of the law, believers have been freed through Christ from the whole law and all of its parts. Beautifully stated, wonderfully said, the scriptures teach that we are utterly freed from A, the condemnation of the law, because we are in Christ and there is no condemnation in him, and B, we are utterly freed from trying to justify ourselves by way of the law, because Christ is our justification, and he is received by grace through faith, apart from the works of the law. Cannot highlight that enough. That is the beautiful, wonderful way in which The moral law with its condemnation or its requirement to do all of it in order to live has truly been set aside in Christ Jesus. So let's simply let Chemnitz restate it all for you and we'll move on to the new. 
with regard to the curse and condemnation of the law because of sins, likewise justification by the works of the law, believers have been freed through Christ from the whole law and all of its parts, so that when we must deal with God, we be not condemned, but he forgive us our sins, receive us into grace, adopt us as his sons, and receive us to life eternal. For this, neither the whole law nor any part or form of it is necessary, nor is it necessary that we seek or pursue these very great benefits by obedience with regard to any part of the law. But they all come to us free, or by grace for the sake of Christ through faith. And though the law always accuse and condemn us because of sins, yet believing, we are delivered from this threatening accusation and condemnation. And of course, Romans 8.1, cited there as well as 33 through 34, 10.4, Galatians 3.13 and 4.4. Beautiful, wonderful scriptures. Of course, I'm just summarizing them all up from one line out of the Romans. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no need to self-justify. We're not justified by the works of the law. Wonderfully, wonderfully stated, and that is the way in which we are free from the law. According to the scriptures, according to Luther and his great Galatians commentary, according to Chemnitz here, according to the entirety of the Lutheran Confession, Yeah, and just to parse out a little bit of what he's saying here, because it's worthwhile. Neither the whole law nor any part or form of it is necessary. That is to say, when we're considering our standing before God, whether we will have an eternal life or eternal death, the law is completely and utterly cast aside if we're in Christ. Now, if we reject Christ, there's nothing but the law. Okay? But if we have Christ, there is no law whatsoever. And then I think this next part's important too. Nor is it necessary that we seek or pursue these very great benefits. That is that we seek or pursue eternal life by obedience with any regard or with regard to any part of the law. That is to say, our salvation isn't somehow contingent upon, like it's not based on grace. It's not started in grace and then finished in works. It's not... As though justification is like, God's like, okay, I adopt you by pure grace, but now how well you keep the law depends on whether or not you'll be saved. That's what Chemnitz is rejecting. It's neither begun, continued, or ended in the law. The law is completely and entirely set outside of the realm of justification. Or if you want to internalize it the way Luther teaches in Great Galatians, In the conscience of man, in his soul, in his standing before God, the law can have no place whatsoever. So we are constantly and always pressing the law out of our consciences and into our flesh where it belongs. That it may crucify the flesh, we may daily drown the flesh with its sinful desires. But we always keep it out of our conscience. Um, The flip side is, we keep the gospel out of our flesh. 
Because when we push the gospel into our flesh, then the flesh goes, Oh, I can go on sinning. The grace abounds. Perfect. God likes to forgive. I like to sin. Go for it. (laughs) So when the law comes up out of the flesh into the conscience, now we've got legalism. When the gospel gets pushed out of the conscience into the flesh, now we've got antinomianism. See how that works. So we we battle legalism by keeping the law out of the conscience, out of justification. We battle antinomianism, lawlessness, licentiousness in the scriptures by keeping the gospel out of the flesh. Okay, and again, I'm just taking those ideas that Luther himself teaches and putting them forward to you. This is not my own wit or wisdom. It's his. Okay, now on to the next key part. And you can see this on the top of 51, the second line, right after the scriptural citations. And I want you to see the the grammatical construction here. Okay, he starts, but with regard to transgression or obedience. Okay, now look at this. Go back to the beginning of the paragraph on page 50. He begins it with these words, with regard. Okay, so you can see that there's a contrast taking place here. Point A is with regard to the curse and condemnation of the law because of sins. Likewise, justification by the works of the law. Believers have been freed through Christ from the whole law and all of its parts. That's A. Now the top of 51B. But with regard to transgression or obedience, there is a great difference between the parts or kinds of divine law. For the ceremonial and political laws of Moses have so been abrogated that we are not obligated to obey them. For it is not sin now when we fail to keep those laws either by omission or by transgression. In fact, he that wants to observe them out of a feeling of necessity has lost Christ. And Galatians is cited because, again, ye who seek to be justified by the law, you are fallen from grace, St. Paul writes. And in that particular instance, it's circumcision. These Christians were saying, you have to be circumcised. You have to obey this one law of God, this one ceremonial law in order to be saved. And Paul says, that is anathema. That cannot be tolerated whatsoever. No conditions can be brought into justification. Otherwise, grace itself is destroyed. And all of a sudden, it becomes a matter of works and reward. So Paul will have none of it, and we shouldn't either. Neither will the Lutherans, Luther, Chemnitz, Gerhard, or us. So again, anyone who wants to observe the ceremonial or political laws out of a feeling of necessity, I have to do this, you've actually lost Christ. But, and here's Chemnitz's real point, all men are bound to obey the commandments of the Decalogue. And their transgression is in all men at all times accused and condemned 
unless there is remission. And Christ bestows his Holy Spirit on the believers so that in them an obedience according to the commandments of the Decalogue is begun. That's why Chemnitz calls it the new obedience. And this, by the way, was common throughout the Western Church, continues to be. The new obedience is begun when God sends his spirit into our hearts, changing our hearts so that with great weakness, we begin to obey the Decalogue, obey that eternal law. And then Chemnitz finishes by saying, Paul bears witness to this everywhere in his writings. Okay, so again, you can see the contrast then, and we can use external categories of justification and sanctification, or internal categories of conscience and flesh. They mirror each other. In justification, in the conscience of the Christian, no law. No condemnation of the law, no keeping the law in order to be saved. In the sphere of sanctification or the flesh, the law is exigent. And the law has a positive effect as it guides the new man. And it has a negative effect as it continues to crucify and oppress the old man. So that the law belongs in sanctification and the law belongs in the flesh. So again, Chemnitz says, all men are bound to obey the commandments of the Decalogue, and this special grace has been given to believers in Christ, that Christ sends his Holy, his Holy Spirit into our hearts, that a new obedience is begun. And again, we don't give ourselves enough credit. I think Lutheranism still has this streak of pietism within it, where we're too humble to acknowledge this which is kind of ironic, it's sort of, it's paradoxical, because, oh, we're too humble to acknowledge that the Holy Spirit indwells me, that the Holy Spirit has changed me, that I have new desires in my heart, that I have new obedience. I don't want to acknowledge that because that seems boastful or proud. So instead, I'm going to call God a liar and reject what he plainly says in his word, which is that he does give his Holy Spirit, he does create in us new hearts, and those hearts are living and active and begin to, albeit with great weakness, fulfill the law. I think, ironically, the most obvious one of all is the first commandment. That you would fear, love, and trust in God above all things. An unbeliever could absolutely care less. The very root and essence of a believer is that he loves God. It's the very reason why he hates himself and his sins. That's the very reason why he loves Christ and loves the gifts. And obviously that's mixed with all the sinful impulses of the flesh to the contrary. But the very first thing a, a Christian does is says, I love him because he first loved me. That is the new obedience begun by the power of the Holy Spirit and that very essence and root of I love God and hate myself and wish that I could be perfectly conformed into his image even now. That very essence of what it is to be a Christian is in fact the new obedience and the beginning of the fulfillment of the law. That's why you can't have faith without works. And even the idea of like, well, you could have faith without works 
theoretically and still get into heaven. It doesn't exist. If you have faith, you love the Lord who loved you first. You may as well try to separate wetness from water. (laughs) You're not going to be able to do it. You can't separate justification from sanctification. You can't separate faith and these new impulses of the heart. They're two sides to be kept distinct, but two sides of one coin. And you can no sooner separate those than you destroy the coin itself. So again, we want to actually humble ourselves to say, no, the Holy Spirit has created a clean heart within me. He has set my heart free in such a way that I have now begun to love God and begun to love my neighbor. Is it anywhere near perfect? Absolutely not. Any day will show that. But it's nonetheless there. And that's the seed. That's the root from which God will ultimately bring to completion in each one of us that which he has begun. All right, I see a hand popping up. Are we going to run the microphone just right up here? Um, I think it's it's easy for us to say it because we, we know it in our head that God loved our uh, loved us first, but to put that into our daily life because it's so much hardship in this world that it seems like the hardships is you know push the love of God away from our conscience and away from our reality. So it's really a a conflict that how we can you know reconcile that or Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah it absolutely is that's the struggle and cross of the christian faith as it's lived out and there are many ways in which we could say well the devil the world and our sinful nature assault us and all of that's true but there's another way in which we ought to think about it also and Luther does this by taking us to Genesis and to the story of Abraham, that no sooner has God given great and wonderful promises to Abraham that he will be with him, that through him will come the Messiah, that through this Messiah all the families of the earth will be blessed. No sooner has God claimed Abraham as his own, given him the most priceless promises imaginable, he immediately starts to oppose those promises. Why would God promise and then oppose and, and or allow the devil, the world, and our sinful nature to oppose them, which is still God allowing the opposition of his promise, why would God play both sides like this? What's his point? What's his purpose? Now, again, I'm just summarizing Luther here. Okay? And he says precisely this, that faith, which is created by the promise and sustained by the promise, would become strengthened so that when devil, world, sinful nature, when God himself opposes the promise, faith has no choice but to cling to that promise. 
Now you could see very acutely what brings about this meditation on the part of Luther, and it's God's promise that through a child of Abraham's own flesh would the Messiah come. And he gives that child, though Abraham is an ancient man and his wife is uh, not only ancient and past the time of childbearing, uh, but was herself always and ever barren. And yet God promises that these two, Abraham and Sarah, will have a miracle child through whom the Messiah will come. That miracle child comes. That's Isaac. God promised, God fulfilled that promise, or seemed to. Because what's the very next major event? God tells Abraham to sacrifice this very son of promise. God opposes the very thing he has promised. Now, all of this gets fleshed out in the very name of Jacob, transformed into the name of Israel, which means to wrestle with God. And so God's people are always wrestling with God. But we're wrestling with him as children wrestle with their father. A father doesn't wrestle the children to hurt them, but to teach them and strengthen them. And so God opposes God for the same purpose. He promises us as his children and then opposes us like a father wrestling with his children, we wrestling back so that we would learn to cling to him in faith no matter what. Even when our eyes see contrary, our hearts see contrary, even if God himself were to seemingly say the contrary, we cling to that promise. Again, the promise is in your son. Go sacrifice your son. That's God seemingly to say something contradictory to the promise. You cling to the promise. And Abraham's way of working this out is as he says to his servants at the base of the mountain, my son and I, we will return to you. If God has me sacrifice my son, God is no liar. He will have to raise my son that through him the line of the Messiah will proceed. Okay, so that's a really lengthy answer, but that's part of why God allows it to be so hard, is he's exercising and training our faith that we can be ever more conformed into the image of Jesus. Now, one final thought here, especially apropos of our Lenten meditation. Think of Jesus, who is forsaken by the Father. Remember in the baptismal waters? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Remember at the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, at the cross, Father, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, God speaks. God opposes his speech. What does Christ do? Though he is forsaken by God in a way that none of us will know because he's bearing not only your sins and mine but the sins of the whole world, though he is forsaken by God in this extreme measure, he still cries out, my God, my God. The perfect speech of faith. Why have you forsaken me? I still cling to you in faith. I know what you have said to me despite what is now being experienced by me. 
And that then is the template for our Christian lives, that no matter what we experience or what it seems like God is saying or doing or um, what he's allowed to transpire in our lives, we cling to his word of promise. He has claimed us as his sons and daughters in baptism. We cling to that word of promise no matter what. And faith triumphs. In this way, we are, con- we are conformed to this highest of all glories, that Christ, as true man, would believe in God even when God utterly and completely forsook him. That is, then, the first table of the law, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, with all your soul. That is the first table because when God's pouring out blessings on you, that's easy to love him. But what if he has forsaken you or withdrawn those blessings? Can you still love him? Well, Christ does this in the absolute extreme on the cross. And that's the template into which we are being built so that, I mean, it's impossible to have the faith of Christ, but that we would approach that faith of Christ as we progress along through life. Mm-hmm. Okay, I see another, please. Yeah, you've already um, addressed this indirectly. Um, <clears throat> there's so many views in the church as far as the um, separation from justification and sanctification, like I believe the Catholic Church would step to say, no, they're, they're all the same. Mm-hmm. And there's other side of many Protestant churches to say, oh, no, there are two separate experiences. You are first saved, and then you are justified. Some of them say that you are saved by grace and you're sanctified by works. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering what the Lutheran insight would be on that. Are they actually separate experiences? I don't think they are, but... You, like you said, there are two sides of, of, one, of the same coin, yeah. but how would that be addressed? Yeah, when God gives you the one coin, that's justification and sanctification. That's faith and a new heart. He gives you the coin. He can't possibly give you one side and not the other because they're an organic whole. It is one coin. It just has these two sides. Now, the problem is when you mix those two sides up, you end up destroying grace. Because the nature of grace is that it's completely apart from works. Remember, Paul talks about this uh, later in Romans. I think it's chapter 11. If, if it's given to you on account of works, it's not grace, it's payment. <laughs> right? If it's conditioned upon anything, no matter how small, it's no longer grace, it's payment. It's an exchange. It's a quid pro quo. The nature of grace is such that it excludes all works. Okay. So then we are justified by grace through faith apart from works. Okay. When you mingle in works, it's grace that just gets disintegrated. And so that has been, since the time of the Reformation, the critique of formal Roman Catholicism. Now, I think that there's actually Roman Catholic people who hear the Holy Spirit speaking through his word, speaking through Paul and Christ. And they believe this. In their heart of hearts, they know this distinction, and they believe it. And they're just kind of confused when their priests and theologians speak in a different way. But when you mingle justification and sanctification, grace disappears, and it just becomes quid pro quo. That's one way of mingling justification and sanctification. One, if you mingle the conscience and flesh together, then you're constantly living in a state of a bad conscience and uncertainty because you're constantly going, have I done enough today that God loves me? Have I done enough today to offset his anger? 
are my, are my daily credits and debits such that my credits are outweighing the debits? What about the whole course of my life? Okay, so that's what it looks like internalized. This, by the way, is why in Roman Catholic theology they say confidence that you're going to be saved is arrogance and hubris. Okay? But how could you be anything other than in this state of uncertainty and question? Well, that's, I mean, you don't see that reflected in the biblical authors. Okay? You don't see that in the faith of the apostles. And why not? Because they're keeping these things separated. Justification and sanctification, faith and good works, they keep grace and the new obedience. They're keeping these things separated like the two sides of the coin, even though they're always and ever confessing that it's one organic whole. It's one coin that God gives you with these two different facets. Okay. Now there's other ways that grace and 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 um, or yeah grace and works get mingled. A Lutheran version of that is you stick grace, you, st- you stick justification, sanctification, or grace and works together, and what you do is you bl- obliterate not justification and not grace, but you obliterate uh, sanctification and good works. You say there is no new obedience, there is no fruitfulness of the Holy Spirit, there is no change in the heart. Uh, there, there is none of this. There is just you, a wretched sinner, no different than the day you were made. Now that you're a baptized Christian, you're the same wretched sinner. There's no change in you whatsoever. The only difference is now you know how bad you are. Uh, it's an utter rejection of the scriptures. It's an utter denial of sanctification. It's an utter denial of the new obedience and good works. It's every bit as much of a heresy. And that would be a second way. It's just in terms of exposure in larger Christianity. It's just a narrow slice of Christianity who's experienced that ridiculous error. Because why? I mean, because on its face it's ridiculous. You can't read the scriptures and hold that view seriously. So if there is no sanctification because sanctification has been collapsed into the sphere of justification, then any attempt to live a better life, any attempt to follow the law is de facto, because it's been shoved into the category of justification, is de facto self-justification, climbing the ladder. This is a theology that's not built out of the scriptures, but built off of what is pietism, what is American evangelicalism doing, these traditions that emphasize the Christian more than Christ and emphasize good works more than salvation, This theology that I'm speaking of is a reaction against those theologies. Nobody's reading the Bible and going, oh, look, right here, St. Paul collapses sanctification and justification, says any attempt to abide by the law of God is now self-righteousness. Never once does Paul say that. They come up with this in opposition to these other heresies, creating their own heresy, and then they go try to mangle the scriptures to work that out. Okay, well... Lengthy answer to your question, but hopefully somewhat helpful. Okay, we're at time. That's a perfect place to stop. So let's pick up next week at question 75 and 76. And what we're going to take a look at is we're going to be introduced to the concept of adiaphora, those things that are neither commanded by the Scriptures nor forbidden by them. So how does that work from the New Testament Scriptures? And of course, how does that affect our life together as Christians in terms of worship? So we'll be looking at all of that. And then, of course, as we progress along to 53, we'll be going back to 
the Decalogue and as such, and we're going to be looking again in a, in a more careful way at the dynamics we've touched on today in regard to the use of the law. The Lord be with you.